All right, tonight we are going to look at one of my favorite books of the New Testament. Um, I did not become a Christian until I was 19, and I distinctly remember this was one of the first books that really like spoke to me in my Christian journey. Um, some of the first verses I ever memorized was out of this book. Uh, it is the book of James, so... We are going to be looking at the first chapter today, the first 12 verses of chapter 1. So, um, as a new believer, I wasn't precisely a theologian by any means, and so I really appreciated the way James writes. This book is extremely straightforward and practical. Um, you can glean a lot of um, just really practical information out of it. And as I have hopefully, I guess, matured in my walk. I've been extremely blessed that it's not only straightforward on the surface, but there's a depth and a richness to what James writes in this book. And so I've always um, appreciated coming back to it over the years. So um, famously, however, uh, one of the catalysts of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, not a fan of the book of James. In fact, he called it the Epistle of Straw. He thought that it contradicted Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone, by emphasizing works. Uh, that was the main critique. There were a few others. But I do think that a, on a careful um, examination of the verses, they actually fit in just fine with what Paul teaches, right? God is not the God, the author of confusion, so that is us. So um, tonight we are going to look at what I think is one of the most critical topics in the book of James and something that I believe is becoming more and more important to have a solid foundation on in our own walks as Christians. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that the days are becoming darker, more evil. And so um, we are going to be covering tonight the topic of trials. Okay, So um, let us begin by reading the scripture together, and then I will pray for us, and then we will dive in. Okay, So James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat, then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. 
Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, we just um, come before you tonight, and we just ask, Lord, for you to be in our midst this evening. Uh, You know us better than we know ourselves, Lord. You know exactly where our hearts are, Lord. And so we just ask that you will help us to, um, just in this time tonight, just empty ourselves of anything that would hinder your work in our lives this evening, Lord. Uh, We just praise you for your word. What an incredible gift you've given us, Lord. We ask for your forgiveness for those times we treat it too lightly, Lord, that we don't treat this book like what it is, Lord, your direct communication with us. And so we just thank you, Lord, that um, you are a kind uh, and generous God, Lord, that you are always calling to us, Lord, that you're always guiding us, Lord, gently, And so we just thank you for your kind work in our lives. And so we just pray tonight that you will give us ears to hear, Lord, that our hearts will be made ready for what you would have for us, Lord. We know that you're speaking to us, so we just ask that we will be able to hear what you have for us tonight, Lord. And so we just look forward to it, Lord, with a a spirit of expectation, a spirit of gratitude, Lord. And um, we just uh, pray your blessing on this time. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, um, sorry, I'll I'll, I'll figure this out at some point this evening, sorry. Um, While this section of scripture that we're going to go over tonight seems to be dealing with multiple topics, all of them tie back in to James's original point of trials, and we're going to see that as we dig in. But first... Let's look at verse 1 here. Uh, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So, um, just by a little bit of introductory kind of housekeeping, the book of James is written by uh, James, the brother of Jude, and the half-brother of Jesus. Um, He's also called James the Just in the New Testament, uh, we know that despite the fact that there were several other Jameses floating around during this time, just because uh, none of the other Jameses, uh, James, the brother of John, son of Zacchaeus, or, yeah, sorry, I, I may have messed that one up. Anyways, um, none of these other guys fit into this book. And we see by the fact that James is very clearly just giving his name, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would expect everybody to know who he was that was reading this book. James the Just, James the brother of Jude, um, he was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so it is extremely uh, good evidence that he was the author of this book. Um, The book of James is probably the oldest book of the New Testament. Um, the date for its authorship is somewhere between 44 and 49 AD, which, in case you're interested, puts it somewhere in the timeline of Acts 12 to 14. So when 
the things in Acts 12 to 14 are happening. That's when James is writing his letter here. And that also explains why his greeting was only to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. If you guys recall, Peter didn't have the vision that Gentiles were to be accepted into the church until Acts 10. So this is only a couple of years after that had happened. And so it's very likely that at this point in the church's life, Gentile believers were still either not a part of the church or there in any kind of significant numbers. It's not until the Council of Jerusalem in 49 that they really start to like officially start to welcome Gentiles into the church. But while James is limiting his greeting strictly to what seems like the Jewish believers, obviously the contents of it apply to every believer. So, um, so let's just jump right in in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. No matter how lucky, lucky, air quotes, we've been in our lives, it is certain that one day we will face agonizing trials. And there's a very good chance that some, if not all of us in this room, have or are currently in the midst of some. Um, And in a way that really conflicts with the impression of the Christian life that's often given in America, right? This idea that somehow if you become a Christian, you're going to be full of fulfillment and wealth and health and happiness and success, and there's not going to be any trials or pain or difficulties, which we know is a lie. Um, But isn't that sometimes how... We try to sell Jesus to people, right? We come to them in a tough time, and we go, hey, you know, what would help you in this tough time? Jesus, right? Now, there's obviously truth in that, but the way that it's done is often as a, an alternative to pain as opposed to um, a helper who wants to guide us through that pain in a way that honors him. So... James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Um, Falling into various trials means that there is no distinction made here between the kind of trial we're talking about. Uh, A lot of them that are the most easy to kind of latch onto are are external trials, right? Something as simple as, I caught a flat tire today, or, um, you know, my spouse got in a car wreck. I lost my job, I just got a terrible health diagnosis, or maybe I just lost a loved one. But there are also internal trials that people deal with, things like disappointment. You know, I thought I would have done more in my life, and I don't seem to be going anywhere. Or uh, loneliness. We see, obviously, even in a world of huge technological connection, People are becoming more and more lonely and isolated in their own lives. Things like depression and anxiety. Things that even Christians walk through at times. So James doesn't make any distinction here when he exhorts us to count it all joy. 
no matter what kind of trial we're walking through. So let's just do a quick mind exercise. Um, what is the worst trial you can imagine? Okay, everybody, I'll give you a couple seconds here. I'll take a drink while y'all think of it. Just a second. Okay, um, how many of you are parents? Raise your hand. Okay, great. A good amount of you. Keep your hands up. Uh, if the worst trial you were just imagining involves your children, keep your hand up. Yeah, I didn't see pretty much anybody's hand go down. Great, exactly. I know exactly what you mean as a parent. My hand's right there too. Uh, the death of a child, for example. One of the most horrifying things I can think of. So let's compare that uh, to Genesis 22. We're going to take a look at Abraham. And those of you who are familiar with this section of Scripture probably know what is coming. So we're going to look at Genesis 22, just the first couple of verses to start us off with, okay? So Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Sorry, I keep wanting to call that Moria. I don't know if it's like a Lord of the Rings obsession or what, so my apologies. I have to like correct my brain. Yes, so here we go. Um, so parents, uh, I mean, just look at the way that God makes this command to Abraham. He says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Could you imagine, not only is the very worst thing happening that a parent could imagine, but God is commanding Abraham to do the deed himself. So let's briefly talk about uh, what happens next, okay? So God does this and Abraham starts arguing with him. No, Abraham doesn't argue with him at all. He just goes, okay, next day, he loads up his stuff, takes some servants, takes Isaac, off they go. They find the mountain that God's directing him to. They unload the wood, the torch, and him and Isaac by themselves head up the mountain. And Isaac goes, hey, we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb that we're sacrificing? And what does Abraham say? God will provide the lamb, right? Was he lying to Isaac, do you think? No, I don't think so either. So here we go. He gets to the spot that God has designated, builds the altar, binds Isaac. I mean, I think at this point, Isaac kind of got the hint of what was going on. Binds Isaac, lays him on the altar, gets the knife ready. And then I believe it is verse 12, that same chapter. So 22, 12. And he said, so this is an angel now. And he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. That is an extremely intense story, right? For those of you who may not be as familiar with kind of why Isaac was so special, other than just being this guy's son, who obviously, if you had 20 kids, you'd feel the same way about it. Um, 
Abraham couldn't have kids. And then God promised him that he would make him a great nation. And then his wife was able to conceive, and they had Isaac. And God called Isaac, basically his promise to Abraham would be fulfilled through Isaac. And so you have this man who was given these promises by God. And then at this moment, God comes to him and says, hey, I need you to go ahead and kill that son, that promise that I gave you. I need you to go kill it. And without hesitation, without argument, Abraham went and did it. And so after God says, hey, listen, uh, I know that you fear God since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me, then what? He finds a ram stuck in the thicket. God did provide the sacrifice. They went and they killed it. They worshiped and then they came down. So now we're going to jump ahead into the New Testament. We're going to look at Hebrews 11, um, specifically because this is a New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. So I really love this. It makes my life easier because the New Testament just like pulls insights out of it that you might not have on your own. And so Hebrews 11, we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 really quickly. So it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. So... Just think about that for a minute. Abraham's faith was so solid on God that he believed that if God made a promise to him, he would fulfill it, even if it meant raising Isaac from the dead. He had no doubt. God tells me to kill my son. He must. He promised that he would uh, put a peoples through Isaac. Therefore, he will raise him from the dead in order to keep it. That is how incredibly solid Abraham's faith was, right? What is the saying Galatians? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay. So what does it mean then to count it all joy? Because when you're walking through something that's awful, there is no joy in that immediate pain. Right? It's not like you're going to wake up and be like, man, I am so pumped that I lost my mom last week. Right? There's no joy here. And this is not a fake it until you make it situation where you just like, keep putting on the face, you keep saying the words, and maybe one day you'll believe them. Okay? That's not what's being talked about here. So to count it all joy is you making a conscious choice to find joy. Okay? And joy comes from the thought, not of your immediate circumstances, but what comes after. Okay? What God is doing in your life through this trial. So how can we be so confident that God is doing something or that this is the right way to handle it? Well, let's consider a little further in Hebrews to 12. And we'll just look at verse 2 really quickly. 
So Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ himself is our example in this. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We all know what the um, last few hours of Jesus' life looked like. We all remember the story when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's in such distress that the capillaries in his skin start bursting, and he starts literally sweating blood. That is what he was facing, like the anguish. And yet, for the joy that was set before him, he endured, right? He, as with all things, is our example. So, so we find the joy in being able to hold on to what is coming after, what is God doing in your life, okay? So let's just talk about a few things here. What does God accomplish in our lives when we go through trials? I'm going to give you a list of some things. Um, It is by no means an exhaustive list. A lot of these things are related to one another, but let's just walk through them all one by one, shall we? So, uh, first, trials come as a way for us to gauge our spiritual temperature or our spiritual reality is another way to put it. It is extremely easy to be grateful and to praise God when things are going well, isn't it? Um, When you and your family are healthy, when your problems are pretty minuscule and easy to overcome, it is very easy to be like, man, God is good, amen? (laughs) It's when you're tested that you really get to see for yourself what you're depending on. Valuable things are often proven through testing, even in a material realm. Um, I was thinking about like every movie where somebody's trying to pay somebody else with like gold coins. What happens? The guy at the other end of the table picks up a coin and he goes, <coughs> and he bites it. Because gold is soft. And if it's a real gold, it's going to leave teeth marks. And all of the imitation gold is way too hard to do something like that. So valuable things are proven through testing. Uh, Diamonds are another great example of this. One of the ways that you can tell a real diamond from a fake one is by heating it. You take a torch, you blast it for about, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds with a torch, and you douse it immediately in a thing of cold water. A diamond will not react in any way to that. But guess what happens if you put in a cubic zirconia or a piece of glass? I think it's shattering quickly. So in that same way, we, when we are tested, we find out if our faith is genuine or an imitation. Okay? Trials cannot destroy true faith. They only reveal it. Okay? So let's consider Mark 4. We're going to quickly look at the parable of the soils. Um, So we're going to be in Mark 4. We're going to do verses 3 through 9 to start with. And then, because Jesus very helpfully um, gave us the answers to the parable, we're going to look at that piece too. Okay? 
So Mark chapter 4, verses 3 through 9. Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on the stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. Okay. So Jesus gives this parable. And then after everybody had like kind of left and it was just him and his him and his apostles, him and his disciples, they all came to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, great job. Uh, what did any of that mean? Like they, they did not know what Jesus was talking about. And so very kindly, Jesus uh, translated for him. So picking it back up in verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones that by the wayside were, excuse me, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now, these are the ones sown among thorns, and they are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on the good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, and some 100. So not going to get too deep into this particular parable. There's a, a whole lot in here to unpack, but uh, just a few things I want to point out. One, there are four types of soil, okay? One of the types of soil is good. Of the three that are not good, only one of them rejects the word. The other two do not, Okay? Notice that there are multiple types of bad soil where the word is ostensibly accepted. Okay? We are excellent at self-deception. And as the parable of the soils teaches us, when trials hit, we can quickly learn that our faith isn't based on anything. The stony ground, they have no root. Persecution comes, trials comes, they're gone, they're out. The ones sown among thorns, they're people who are wanting to have Christ just as long as they can also have all of the world as well. And those cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, chokes it out, and it's never fruitful. So we quickly can learn how true our faith is by trials. And who is this testing for, ultimately? God doesn't need to know how genuine our faith is. He already knows. This is for our benefit, guys. Testing will either give us peace of mind that our faith is genuine when we run to him in these trials, or it will warn us 
that it's not. Okay? So that's number one. Number two, trials come as a way to humble us. Okay? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So this is Paul talking. So here's Paul's... Um, Here's what Paul has to say about being humbled by trials. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So I think it's fair to say that we, as humans, have a propensity to exalt ourselves. Um... Have any of you ever had a moment where you thought to yourself, man, God must be really happy with me because I totally rocked it today. Uh, Because I'm so mature and wise, I've never had that happen, but um, I hear that other people do have that happen. So (laughs) obviously, obviously joking there. But um, now imagine you're Paul. You're one of the few people to have seen the risen Christ. One of 500, I suppose. But even after he ascended to heaven, he came to Paul. And he taught you personally. They think that he was taught by Jesus personally for three years in the desert before he began his ministry. And you had been given a commission directly from Christ to preach to the Gentiles. You had been all over the Roman Empire and you had founded multitudes of churches and brought multitudes of people to faith in Christ. And you had been, on top of all of that, a vessel for God's revelation for an enormous chunk of what's going to become the New Testament. Which you may ask yourself, did Paul know he was doing that? The very early church fathers considered it scripture even from the beginning, so we can talk about that. But So imagine all of that had happened in your life. He knew himself, and more importantly, God knew him. And so just as God used trials to build humility in Paul, he uses it in our lives. Okay, So trials come as a way to humble us. Number three, trials wean us from worldly things. Um, I would like to confess some sin from the pulpit today. Hope you guys are, you guys are ready for this. Uh, I am much more at peace with my life than I was when I made $12 an hour. So when Cindy and I got married, I worked at Micron. I think I was making twelve fifty actually. $12.50 an hour. That was my first job as a man married to somebody who now I'm like, I have somebody depending on me. Today I make more than that. And I am much more at ease in my life. Did my circumstances change any? On a material basis, yeah, sure. But what am I, what am I trying to say here? I, you know, If you don't have any idea, I don't blame you. What I'm trying to say is, who was providing for me when I was making $12.50 an hour? God. And who was providing for me today? God. 
My circumstances have not changed. He always knew, he always cared, he always provided. But me, from a worldly sense, I'm making more than that. You know, my checks are bigger, blah, 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 all that stuff. And so trials are a great way to help us to let go of these worldly things that we hang on to. I don't know if I'm alone, but do you find that as you accumulate things, you trust in them more and more? Whether you have a great job, a nice house, a good 401k, despite the fact that your 401k is not doing too good this year, but you know, just in general, do those things give you any comfort in your life? I think if we're all honest, probably to a certain extent, yes. When you are put through trials, it becomes apparent very quickly that the things of this world are no help to solve them. And ultimately, what's left for the believer? To go, you know what, Lord? It's only you. Depend less on the things of this world. Depend more on you. Because where do you go when your children decide to take the broad road? And they decide to live a life of sin, completely apart from God. Is your 401k going to help you get through that? No. Or where do you go when your loved one passes away and you are left to pick up the pieces? That jet ski's fun, but it's not going to help you get through that piece either. These worldly things are a trap ultimately. And so trials are a really beautiful way God uses to pull us away from them, to train our eyes on him instead. Okay? Number four, trials reveal what we really love. Again, these are all related, so you're going to see some echoes here. So, are you looking at earth or up to heaven when trials come? Okay? Let's look at Abraham again. We just talked about him. Even though he loved Isaac immensely, even though Isaac was the fulfillment of God's promise to him, He loved God more. So when the Lord came to him and he told him to sacrifice his son, he obeyed it without question because he loved God more. If you love anything more than you love God, God has to have that thing or else your relationship with him is never going to be real, never going to be where it needs to be. Let's look at Mark 10. We're going to look at verses 17 through 22. This is the story of the rich young ruler, just in case if anybody um, can recognize that, obviously. Uh, so let me go ahead and do Mark 10, 17 through 22. Now, as he, Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack. Go away, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
in that moment that Jesus gave him the cost of following him, he realized that he loved his life. He loved the, the wealth that he had. So trials reveal what we really love. Okay, Number five, trials increase our ability to minister to others. Um, how many of you have been ministered to in your trials by somebody who's gone through something similar? I know I have. Um, I mean, we have an into, even, even the world gets this on some level, right? AA, NA, all that stuff are these groups of people who have all been through what people are going through because they know that um, when you are with people who have been through those hardships and the ups and downs that you're experiencing, they're the ones that are best able to help you through them, right? Trials are painful, but through them, God can use you more and use you to bless somebody else, okay? So number six, trials reinforce the character of God. Okay, and the idea behind this one's pretty simple. You go through trials, and as you're going through trials, you see time and time again that God is faithful, that he steers you through the tough times, he lifts you up when you fall down, he strengthens you when you can't go on, and then ultimately he brings about a huge blessing in your life when you've made it through. And when you see God show up for you time and time again, through every single trial, without fail, without hesitation, your understanding of his character deepens and your love and appreciation and your faith in that character is strengthened. So trials reinforce the character of God. And then lastly, trials build spiritual strength. Um, You know, just like when you're trying to get jacked in the gym, no pain, no gain, right? So it's the same way spiritually. When you're tested and you go through that trial successfully, you're building spiritual muscle. That's going to allow your faith to deepen. That's going to allow God to put more on you and to use you in a greater way. So um, as I said, this list is by no means exhaustive. I'm sure there's many other things that God uses, but this is just some things. This is how we can have joy in trials is we know God is doing something great through it. Okay, so verse 3. Here we are. I really got to hurry. Okay, good. So verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Okay, so now we're looking at the next section. We just discussed one of the main ways you can find joy in trials is that we know they are for a purpose. They do something worthwhile and beneficial in our lives. Have you ever prayed a prayer like um, Psalm 139? Uh, We'll just quickly pull it up if we have it. 139, 23, and 24. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I know for my own self I have prayed Similar prayers of my life. But in a way, as you read this prayer, you're really asking God 
to test you, to purify you, to put you through something, right? How often do we connect that idea with trials? Uh, not as often as we should, I think. Um, so our joy in trials is firmly rooted in our knowledge of the truth. Again, this is not a fake it until you make it situation. The joy comes from a place of solid knowledge, okay? What do we need to know to take joy in trials? One, we need to know that God is allowing this trial, that this isn't something that just randomly happened because there is comfort in knowing that what I'm experiencing, I am experiencing for a reason, okay? Number two, we need to know God's character. The, we need to know that the purpose and the nature of this trial is for good and for my benefit because God is good and he's interested in my welfare, okay? So we need to know that it's for a reason. We need to know that that reason is good based on God's character. And three, we need to know that God is powerful enough to bring this good purpose about in my life. That if he puts me through a trial and he promises the benefit that he can deliver, that he's powerful enough to make it happen, which we all know he is. So, or at least I hope you know that he is. Okay, verse four. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. One thing I want to point out about this verse is that it says, but let patience have its perfect work. You have to submit to the work that God does in your life through trials and not fight against it. I, in my own life, have prayed for patience on many occasions. I am um, not a very patient person. And here's what happens when you pray for patience, just in case you guys ever decide to take the plunge with me. Um, you'll make an appointment, and it's in the middle of the day, so you have to leave work early to do it. And about five minutes before you're supposed to leave, everything at work falls apart. And so you walk out of work about eight, ten minutes later than you meant to. And on the way out, the one person in the office that you don't really care for that much comes up to you and gives you another problem. So you're walking out 10, 15 minutes late when it's all said and done. And you think, no problem, I'll make up for it on the road, right? All right, come on, Jesus. Jesus, take the wheel. We're going 90 down the highway. But unfortunately, you live in a road where it's two one-lane highways going in opposite directions, and you're stuck behind a cattle truck doing 35. So now you're even further behind. But somehow, you make it to town, and every red light and its mom Stops you, every intersection, boom, 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 all the way there. And you don't feel very patient in those moments. In fact, if somebody were to look into your window as you're experiencing this, they may see you screaming at the roof. I don't know. Maybe I'm just revealing a little bit too much about myself. Trials are only beneficial if you let God do the work. I just keep telling myself, every time I hit that red light, Lord, thank you for teaching me patience. I desperately need it. Yeah, so especially because guess what happens? You ask him to teach you patience and you fight him on it, it takes like twice as long. So you got to do that, that whole song and dance over and over again. So it is just much easier to submit in those moments. Now, obviously, um, that's a very lighthearted example. There are 
horrible things that people go through. But the rule still stands. God wants to do something amazing in your life, even when it's difficult. And so just let him do his work. Also notice here that the result of these trials is that you will be complete, lacking nothing. Okay? You are not complete without trials. Far from the Christian life being about avoiding trials, you cannot be fully mature without them. Are you comfortable with that truth? I, mean, I'm not, I, I have to tell you, I'm not fully comfortable with that. Lord, help me to really submit to that because I have a very active imagination. I can think of a lot of horrible things that could go on in my life. And knowing that trials are required for my maturity, it, it makes me a little uneasy. As much as I would love to say that I'm fully on board and go, Lord, you are the best. So you have to keep in mind there's always a blessing at the end of the trial. There's always joy that lays on the other side of it. Present blessing and ultimately eternal reward. Okay. Let's uh, jump back to Hebrews. We haven't been there enough tonight, please. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 12, verse 11. And again, this is just a very, I guess, straightforward scripture that I really enjoy. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Submit yourself to the Lord, and he will do great things in your trials, guys. It's as much something to myself as to those of you out here. Okay, so we need to keep an understanding mind, right? This is all about our personal development, about what God wants to do in our lives to produce patience. But how perfectly do we conform to this idea? Not perfectly at all, right? Um, I don't think there are probably many of us that can say that we're like Abraham, and when God tells us to walk through something agonizing or hard or inconvenient or uncomfortable, that we can do it with joy, knowing that God is going to do something amazing with it. So how many of us instead, in those moments, uh, walk through it defeated or desperate or anxious or angry or with self-pity to that extent that we are doing the latter and not the former? We are obviously lacking something to help us go through these trials, which brings us to the next section of Scripture, okay? Verses 5 through 8. So verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be, it will be given to him. How often do we lack wisdom, and how often do we remember to seek it? In those moments in our lives when things are going pear-shaped, sideways, whatever. How often are we the first reflex? Lord, please give me wisdom in this moment. Um, for me, more than it was a year ago, more than it was five years ago. Not 100% yet, still on my way. So hopefully all of you are seeing a similar trend towards it being all the time, okay? Um, so again, trials are often a great reminder to 
seek God for wisdom. And what do we mean by wisdom? Um, wisdom is the practical understanding of the issues of life, or I think the definition I like better is uh, knowledge applied properly. You can have a lot of knowledge, but if you don't know how to use it, you have no wisdom, right? So wisdom is knowledge applied properly. But what's the problem? There are many types of wisdom competing in this world for our attention. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of men. And unfortunately, the wisdom of men has nothing for us. It ultimately leaves us empty and without a rudder. So um, I have uh, my brother, my half-brother. We share a mother, different fathers. And his grandmother just passed away few weeks ago. And then within a week, his wife's grandmother also died. Dad's mom. So dad's mom on both sides. And as they were going through the process of dealing with this death, in an effort to explain those deaths and presumably bring some comfort to themselves, um, his wife, who um, is into astrology and witchcraft and things of that nature, let my brother know, which he then informed me, that the deaths of their grandmothers were caused by the karma of their fathers being reflected back onto their mothers. And so the idea being, uh, my dad was not a good person, your dad was not a good person, therefore their bad karma came and killed their own mothers. Um, Needless to say, I wasn't very impressed with that particular um, claim being made, especially because they were in their late 80s, early 90s, and one of them had been bedridden for a long time, but neither here nor there. The point being, that does not sound like knowledge that will bring closure and comfort. That sounds like something that's going to bring only anger and resentment. But that is the type of wisdom the world has to offer us. So James tells us, let him ask of God. If we are lacking wisdom, which we often are, let him ask of God, okay? This is a commandment being given here. This is not a suggestion or an offer. James is commanding us because there is no other source of wisdom but God, okay? Very quickly, and I'm gonna, sorry, I gotta fly through this so that we're not late tonight. We're gonna look at Job 28. Obviously a fantastic um, example of perseverance through trials, Job. So we're going to look at chapter 28. We're going to look at verses 12 to 28. And this is um, discussing wisdom, okay? But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. And the sea says, it is not in me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighted for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in the precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden away from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. So let me just stop there. Where is wisdom? It is nowhere on this planet, guys. 
It does not exist in the natural world. You cannot find it within nature. Man does not produce it. We talked about no philosophy but Christ a while ago, the last few times I taught, and that the whole point of that is that man's wisdom is always trying to find the answers for the basic foundational things of the universe without God. And you cannot bring truth about the foundation of the universe without discussing the founder of the universe, right? So, anyways, all the way, so I'm going to skip a bunch in Job and just look at verse 28 here. And to man, he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Wisdom is only found in God. The fear of the Lord is wisdom. Okay, so let him ask of God. Great. The next thing James says is, who gives to all liberally? God is not stingy with, when, with the blessings he gives his people. You ask him, he will pour it until you cannot take any more and then some. Guys, he is so generous with us when we ask of him. He is not stingy. And that is... Um, reinforced in the last chunk of this verse, and without reproach, and it will be given to him. How much, like what does reproach mean? It means, uh, hey, God, I need some wisdom. Why? You didn't do very good with it last time I gave it to you, and you don't even understand basically anything I'm telling you anyways. That's reproach. God is not like that. There is no reproach in him. Despite the fact that we don't deserve the blessing, that we aren't that obedient oftentimes, that we don't trust him like we should, God pours out what we need generously, without reproach. He gives to us. So that's verse 5. Moving on to verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This is a very straightforward verse, guys. What good does it do you to pray to God if you don't believe that he is going to give you the thing, or that he can, okay? Waves move back and forth, right? Have you ever sat on the beach and just walk? It's very peaceful and calming. Surf comes in, surf goes out, in, out. A lot of motion, a lot of going nowhere. That is the man who prays to God and doubts that God can do what he prays, okay? Building on that point in verse 7, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And then verse 8, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Okay, The word translated as double-minded, I think it literally means two-souled. So it is a man who uh, is trying to divide his loyalty between God and the earth and the world around him, right? Not going to happen. So... Please understand here that this is not talking about a believer. While a believer may occasionally waver in their trust of God, the term here is specifically talking about an unbeliever, somebody who's trying to fully hold on to the world and then get what he can from God on the other hand. Okay. James 4.8 reiterates this term specifically when talking about a believer, or excuse me, talking about unbelievers. So this is not a term that applies to believers, okay? Double-minded, not in this way, okay? And then lastly, he is unstable in all his ways. Not some of his ways, all of his ways, okay? 
There's nothing for him with the Lord. Okay. So, let's quickly look at the last few verses, starting in verse 9 and then through verse 11 here. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. For a long time, when I would read chapter 1 of James, I assume James talking about something else at this point, like he just decided to slide this in in the middle, like I don't know. But this section is still referring to trials, okay? So let's talk about the two people in this, in this section of scripture, the lowly brother and the rich, okay? The lowly brother literally mean the poor and the rich, okay? So let's look, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. I would say especially in the biblical times and in some places even today, being poor is a constant trial, low-key constant trial. You never have enough. You know, your house is falling apart. You have to choose between paying the groceries or paying the light bill, right? There's horrible things that happen in life when you're poor, right? Just material things. Um, you know, you get sick. How am I going to pay for it? That kind of thing. So being poor is a constant trial of life, okay? But what James is saying here is that at most, it only lasts your entire life, which seems kind of silly to say out loud, but the point being, we have an entire eternity where God will share his riches with us, right? No matter how meager a person's position in a worldly sense, in a material sense, they are on this earth. They are exalted in a spiritual sense. Heirs, right? Sons, daughters. And so ultimately what James is saying here is that there is no comparison between the riches that the poor man has in Christ and even the most lavish riches that exist in this planet. Okay? So that's the poor man. Jumping over to the rich. The rich in his humiliation. Okay? Um, when he's talking about his humiliation, consider it in a modern sense like a guy that heavily invested in crypto about 18 months ago and then watched it just like crater, okay? Was rich, lost it all, okay? And he's saying to glory in his humiliation. Because of everything James has taught about the benefit of trials, the rich should rejoice in their trials as well, knowing that their comfortable life is going to be gone in a moment. And all that matters ultimately is God and their eternity. So um, because the same way with the poor man, his, his poverty only lasts until he reaches the gates of heaven. The rich man, no matter how comfortable his life is, he's not taking any of it with him. Okay, And that's what it says here. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. No sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, right? No matter how good or bad your life is, ultimately, 
If the poor man's exalting in his spiritual exaltation and the rich man is glorying in his humility, guess what they both find? That they are equal in God's sight at the end of the day. So, And let's close it up with verse 12 here. The last verse of this section. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Uh, the thing that I find most interesting about this is that James writes it like a beatitude, right? like one of Jesus' beatitudes. Blessed is the man, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This, I love this verse because it just reiterates all the promises that we've just been talking about, guys. And so I just want to leave you with this same thought that James is talking about here. Enduring temptation always results in present blessing and eternal reward. In those moments when you're going through something that you never thought you could, know that God is working something amazing in it. Hold on to that. God is good. And he has something amazing for you in it. I hope you can hold on to that. So um, with that, let me just pray for us. And then we will call it an evening, okay? Lord God, we just thank you um, just so much for the incredible amount of wisdom that's in your word. Lord, I know that we could spend a hundred years searching its riches and never find the bottom of them, Lord. And so we just always pray, Lord, that you will just um, grant us that wisdom, that wisdom that James commands us to ask you for, Lord. We just pray for it. Um, We just want to be found faithful in your sight, Lord. The only thing that we uh, desire is that when we meet you, that we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the glory of your Lord, to the rest of your Lord, Lord. We just um, ask that you will just be with us. Lord, I don't know um, what trials your people are going through in this room, but you do. And so we just uh, lift all of them up, Lord. Individually, Lord, we just ask that um, they will find comfort in your word, Lord, that they will trust you in those moments, Lord, when they're going through something horrible, they're going through something hard, understanding, Lord, that you are doing a wonderful work in them through it, Lord. So we thank you. We thank you that we can hold on to that promise, Lord. We thank you that when tough times come into our lives, that we're not left on our own, Lord, but you carry us. You get us through it, Lord. And so we just thank you for that promise. We thank you that we can cling to it like a man clinging to a chunk of wood in a raging sea, Lord. And so thank you. We just ask you to please bless our time tonight, our fellowship, and that we just all get home safe. And I just ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.